Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the A to Z of David Bowie. I'm Mark Riley, and that colourful character is Rob Hughes. As you'll be aware, the A to Z of David Bowie is free to download. <laughs> Lunacy. But if you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things, and for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Why, so now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive materials material delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right, Mark. Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Materials such as interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends, there'll be regular film Bowie quizzes, Bowie guitar tutorials, unreleased archive written material, competitions, and perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Nock, and Jason Reed. Visit in various Bowie places of interest and much more besides all this for just $5 a month so if you can't resist simply go to patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things or one word and join up there's also a website bowie at cheap book early U is for U-Boat. Woody Woodman's is U-Boat, to give it its full title, and we will get to why it's called that in a short while. Uh, but um, no disrespect to anybody, mm-hmm. which is always going to bring a little <laughs> bit of disrespect, isn't it? Go on. Possibly. But we won't be spending too much time on U-Boat, will we? No, we won't. And there is, um, well, there's a good reason for that. There is a good reason for that. And it is, it's backed up by the fact that the very first time that I met Woody, mm. okay, and I was really, really excited about him, really thrilled. So yeah. it was the uh, Louder Than Words Literary Festival. Festival at the um, at the uh, old refuge building, the Palace uh, Hotel yeah. in Manchester, and so it, over the weekend they had lots of great people tipping up and, and reading from the book. Viv Albertine was there, you know, lots of different people, and Woody was in there to do a Q and A. Funnily enough, with Joel McIver, oh yes, who co-wrote the uh, Woody's book with him, yes. What happened was, it was all a little bit kind of uh, scary, because what happened was that Joel had got caught up in an accident on the uh, M6, right, and so he wasn't turning up. And so I got to meet uh, Woody. I went into the reception, and uh, I saw Junie's wife say to Woody, that's Mark Riley. <laughs> oh, really? Because like, I, like, I went to my mate, Rich, there's Woody. Uh, <laughs> and I knew about June, obviously, as well. Um, and so I just went up and introduced myself to him, and he was obviously just immediately brilliant, and so was mm, June, just mm. the loveliest people. And he said, oh, we're in a bit of a pickle here. He said, um, uh, Joel, Joel McIver, he's stuck on the motorway and he's not going to make it. Right. He said, uh, who's going to do the interview? And I said, oh, right, I'm, I'm not sure. He went, I think he might be doing it over there. And he pointed at John Robb. Okay. Now, right. John looks a bugger. 
he's, he's, he's absolutely brilliant guy, very, very clever, but he's like muscle-bound, and he often has what he's uh, teaching on a Mohican. Yes, yeah. And so what he's like, I think he's doing it. And I think he thought, <laughs> you know, this guy won't know anything about me, and this is going to be a little bit of a waste of time. Right. And uh, and I, th- I think that Woody was kind of thinking, you know, do you want to do it? Mm. And then I said to him, Woody, if he's doing it, it will be brilliant. Yeah. He's absolutely mad on Bowie and the Spiders. He loves Mott the Hoople. He's a kindred spirit, and it will be great. And I tell you what, John Robb did a, ten times a better job than I would have done. He is great, John Robb. You absolutely brilliant. Really but I was is. talking to Woody in the reception there, and uh, and I was talking to him about his book and how much I liked it, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, enjoyed it. And, he's, and he was talking about the different parts of it, and he went, yeah, he said, uh, there, there were a bit more in there about U-Boat, he said, but um, my publisher said, Take that out, it's boring. <laughs> and I said to him, You're, you know what? You're right, it's boring. So there's hardly any of U-Boat in there. And there is, there's very, very little reference to U-Boat in there. Yeah, I there? know, I know, I can't think of one. It's funny, well, it's very telling in itself, isn't it, that? You know, that you write a, a story, a memoir about your life, about your musical career, and you leave out a, a section like that deliberately because you think, who's going to want to know about this? The publisher didn't even like it. Well, they did come and go, didn't they, uh, U-Boat? And, uh, and and they were called Woody Woodman's U-Boat. Again, we will get to that. So let's get to the actual um, uh, the, the bones of it, eh, mate? Yes. Okay, so Phil Murray and Dave Black were two members of a local Tyneside band. In 1975, Black was asked to replace Mick Ronson as lead guitarist in The Spiders from Mars as they'd reformed after the Bowie era, of course. In 1976, Black left The Spiders and put Murray in contact with Woody Woodmansey and together with Phil Plant, Frankie Marshall and eventually Martin Smith, U-Boat became a band. Signed to Bronze Records, their first album, U-1, was recorded at the Roundhouse Recording Studios and produced by Jerry Bron. Bron placed U-Boat as support band on the extensive 1977 Uriah Heep UK and European tour. Bron suggested that prefixing Woody Woodmansey's to the name U-Boat would, for marketing purposes, help sales. Thus, the name was edited just before the release of the album. Yeah, U-Boat broke attendance records at the Marquee Club during their five-week residency in the summer of 1977. So that's a pretty good start, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. Flipping heck. Uh, the band were influential with many emerging punk outfits. Gary Newman was a fan, emerging with a remarkably similar group image during the Arfens Electric period. That is true. The Sex Pistols sent U-Boat a telegram to say that regardless of not being invited, they would support U-Boat at the ill-fated 1976 Burstow Festival. One of the last appearances U-Boat made was at the Reading Festival in 1977. So they had begun recording their second album when friction between Woodmansey and their manager caused a damaging rift. Murray and Smith remained with the manager, whilst the other three formed another band. Murray signed to Private Stock Records and then had three years signed to Mickey Most at Rack Records before eventually embarking on a successful personal development book writing career. Okay, and as, uh, well, in Woody's own words, U-Boat sank without trace, didn't they? Yeah, so there isn't too much to go out, really. I, I have got the album, and I like the cover. And also, uh, one thing, I know, I know, but um, there was another thing as well, which was an often a talking point at the time, was the fact that Woody was supposed to have the biggest drum kit in the world. Oh, yes. You know, and uh, and it was, I don't think he could sit down. I need to ask him about this one day, really. Uh, but he'd probably just tell me he's boring. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, as I remember it, they played You Missed, and I didn't go and see them. Right. Uh, and I don't know why... I don't 
don't know if I couldn't go or, or just didn't. Um, but I, I seem to remember he had that many rack toms that he couldn't just sit down. So when he wanted to do a full roll on all the rack toms, yeah. like 22 drums mm. or something like that, he couldn't sit down because he's, he's not an orangutan. He, his arms wouldn't reach the drum right. right at the far end. And so he had to stand up and do a roll and just walk <laughs> down with it. Now, if that is true, that is brilliant. But again, it's a little bit damned by faint praise when the fact that you're talking about the major achievement is the mm. fact that he had the biggest drum kit in the world. But that is an achievement bigger than Carl Palmer's, I'm guessing. Well, yeah, but not very practical. Mm. But, you know, um, we love Woody Woodmansey and he's going to get the tribute of all tributes in this series, isn't he, when it comes to WWW? Yeah, of course. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. So, you uh, is also for Nshen Andalou. All right, then. So, now, I'm going to make Go on, on, mate. So, there is a there is a kind of a, a pricey here, which you've taken from the internet, but that's just rubbish, mate. You oh, don't, come on. You don't, All right. you don't need that in your life. So, what I'm being the thorough professional, right? Yeah. I, I sat down and watched Nshen Andalou for the second time, if I'm honest. Well, well, it's 17 minutes long. When was the first time you saw it, then? I think it's about 20 minutes long. Well, the version <laughs> okay. that I saw, but there, there is a bit of a bit Benny Hill escapade in there, so yes. I'll get to that in a moment. The first time I saw it was at Wembley. Ah, of course. Well, we'll get to that. Which is what the whole uh, yeah. point is, really. But anyway, so it, the short and long of it, it starts off with a bloke sharpening a razor while smoking a tab. Yes. Right, okay, and he looks out the window and he sees the moon. Mm. Right, then it goes back to him, and then he cuts with the razor that he's just sharpened, he cuts into an eye. Yes. Now, it looks like, uh, to all intents and purposes, that it's a lady's eye, because uh, you, you see the razor coming towards a woman, and mm. then the eye is pulled open, a little bit like the clockwork orange thing when they put that little yeah. uh, gizmo in his eye. And then it cuts away, and then all of a sudden, there's a slice mm. into an eye. And it's obviously not a woman's face. It looks very much, to me, sadly, like a pig. I think that is what was used for it, uh, by the look of it. I think it might have been a dead calf, actually. Was it really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. okay, pal, yeah. there you go. Uh, and then it cuts to a bloke on a bike, mm. riding down the road, right? And then he goes to this woman's house, right? So let me stop you there, Mark. Wasn't he wearing a, a nun's habit on his bike? Well, he didn't look like it. Oh, I mean, I know okay. that's in the notes, yeah. but he didn't look like it. Right. But I think he's got a suit on. Right, okay. But I, like you see, you might be talking about the director's cut. Okay, mate. Uh, but then he goes to this woman's house, right? And... Uh, and then it's the woman that he's just cut her eye, but her eye's all right now, oh. which is pretty magic. Yeah. And then he falls off his bike outside a flat. Oh, no. Oh, oh, no. So she runs down the stairs. She goes out to help him, right? Then he's lying on the floor with his bike, and he's got a box with him, right? Now, they take the box up, Yes. and there's a collar and a tie in the box. Right, now the bloke is in the flat with her, hmm. and then all of a sudden he looks a bit, like, perplexed. Right. So he's looking at his hand. You think, what's going on there, Bubba? Yeah. He's got a load of ants oh, in his yeah. hand. Yeah. Right, okay. Then there's a hairy armpit. Yes. Don't laugh. And then there's a sea anemone, which looks a little bit like a hairy armpit. Ah, yes. If you think about it. So that's, I understand that bit. And then there's a lady poking a, a severed hand with a stick mm. in the road outside the flat, right? Yeah. So she's got a stick, there's a hand there, and she's just prodding it. Yeah. She, no, she doesn't look like perturbed at all. Right. There's a copper running around, load of people shocked. She's not fussed. Obviously That's... seen one before. Um, so the bloke and the lady that we we're talking about, they're still up in the flat and they're looking out of the window. I'm with you. Now, it appears very much like they put that hand in the road. Oh, I see. And the box, right? The box that had the collar and tie in previously. Yes. yes. This lady is stood in the road 
the one who wasn't bothered. Right. But she's not looking what she's doing. Oh, no. no what do you think kidding? happens next, Bob? Um, they, uh, they they throw a street party. No. No. No, she gets run over. Oh, of she's course. She's not looking what's going. No. There's a car hurtling. And obviously the driver's not looking where no. he's going either because she stood right in the middle of the ah. road. Okay, so then she gets run over. Right? Now, that isn't the end of it. No, okay? no. So then it goes into the flat again. Yes. You've got the bloke there and the woman. Yeah. This is where it goes a bit Benny Hill. Go on, mate. So she stood there and he's oh. kind of fondling her a bit. Yeah. She's got clothes on. Right, okay. But he's fondling her breasts. Right. And then the clothes disappear and he's just fondling her breasts. Wow. Okay. And then she turns around, he's fondling her bum. Right. Okay. Okay. You keep yeah, up, Bob. I'm, I'm okay. Up. I'm up. <laughs> I can see you gazing off into the distance. No, oh, then no. he goes a bit googly-eyed and right. goes a bit old Dr. Jekyll. Oh. It's a bit scary, that. Crikey. And then she gets a, a, a big lump of wood to brain him. Yeah. Right? In case he as a go right. and then it gets a bit Buster Keaton so what he starts doing he starts trying to drag a piano oh. across the living room but he can't do it because obviously it's quite heavy I think there's a donkey in it dead donkey in it dead donkey in it and there's two blokes being dragged behind as well ah. one of whom is Salvador Dali who we'll get to in a moment yes. okay so that's all a bit odd then there's two hands sticking out of a wall with a cocktail oh, shaker oh yeah yeah right okay and then the not well fella mm. right yeah. okay he went yeah. a bit googly eyed he's right. in bed Oh. And he's got that box with him again. Oh, has he? Yeah, then this other bloke comes in, a bit like Al Capone, right. starts bollocking him. Oh, does he? Don't know what he's bollocking no. him for. He does not really explained. Then he does a bit of painting. Right. Right? Okay, I'm not sure what that was about either. And then it goes to a field with the bloke and the woman again, gets a bit fruity again. Right. And then it cuts to that woman, the original woman. She's snogging a different bloke on the beach. No. Yeah. And then what washes up in the tide... Um, the box. Sh- oh, the box. The box. The box. And yeah. some clothes. So he goes a bit Reginald Perry in there. Oh, okay, right. Okay. okay. And then the lady on the beach, she finds a box and the clothes. She snogs a bloke. Then right. the bloke disappears. And then the final shot ah. is of the two original protagonists, I think. Yes. Buried up to the waists in sand. Look, deed. Yes, that's right. They look deed. They do look deed. Well, that's a remarkable, a great pricey, I have to say. Yeah. And all the more amazing for the fact that's all crammed into 20 minutes. Well, yeah, I mean, it took me 20 minutes to explain it. Oh. And I can only, you might as well have watched the bloody thing. That but is... anyway, that is it. Oh, but I, well. I did go to Wembley, and that's the first time I saw David Bowie. And uh, I sat there watching it. And, you know, well, it, we'll get to the whys and wherefores mm. of it, but it's a, a surreal piece. Yeah, it is a surreal piece. So it's not supposed to make any sense whatsoever. No, it's, it's, it's got a, well, what do you call it, a surreal narrative. And but it's it may... bewitching. It really is mm. bewitching. Now, you're obviously just having a bit of a laugh with it there, but you're trying to keep up with it. And the bit particularly where he's dragging the piano, He's, he's quite amazing, really, yeah. and, sh- and she's terrified in the corner with this big lump of wood or a mm. baseball bat, you know, thinking if you get it, if you do manage to get any closer, you're going to get it, brother. Right, okay. Um, so, I mean, I don't think Mark Kermode has got anything to worry about, no. uh, well, you know, as far as film review goes. But anyway, we're going to well, properly at Unchien Andalou, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Well, I was impressed anyway. All the more remarkable, too, it was made in 1929. Yes. So it's a silent... Well, short film, 20 minutes, as we know, directed by Louis Bunuel and artist Salvador Dali. Okay, limited showing to begin with in Paris. Nobody really knew whether anybody would like it, but it ended up being shown for eight months. Yeah, incredible. So, I mean, you have gone to the trouble of putting down the praise here. <laughs> uh, no point. We don't need it, No do we? point at all. Okay, so um, uh, let's look at the cast then as best as I can pronounce it. Go on. So, Simone Marioul. I'll take that. As the young girl, uh, Pierre Batchef as a young bloke, and the second young bloke. Right, okay. Louis Bunuel as man in prologue. Salvador Dali as seminarist, and also the bloke on the beach. Robert Hummey is the third young man, uncredited. Uh, Marval as the seminarist. 
Fanon Massan as androgynous young woman, uncredited. And Jem Marivel as the fat seminarist, also uncredited. <laughs> yeah, All right, right then. Okay. Right, let's get to it. <laughs> okay, so the idea for the film began when Bunuel was working as an assistant director for Jean Epstein in France. He told Darley at a restaurant one day about a dream in which a cloud sliced the moon in half like a razor blade slicing through an eye. Darley responded that he'd had a dream about a hand crawling with ants. Excitedly, Bunuel declared, That's a film! Let's go and make it! <laughs> uh, Bunuel made clear throughout his writings that between Darley and himself, the only rule for writing of the scripts was, to quote, no idea or image that might lend itself to a rational explanation of any kind would be accepted. I think we've gathered that already, haven't we? <laughs> Do you know what, though? It's, what, just thinking about that, it is great, because in a way, that is almost like the oblique strategies and the way that Bowie yeah. worked with Eno, because he was like not supposed to make any real sense. You just had to pick the bones out of it and go with your own interpretation of, it, of what it was. Exactly, all these disconnected ideas. Yeah. yeah. Go figure. In his 1939 autobiography, Bunuel said, in the film, the aesthetics of Serena Realism are combined to some of Freud's discoveries. The film was totally in keeping with the basic principle of the school, which defines surrealism as psychic automatism. Right, uh, the film was financed by Bunuel's mother and shot in Le Havre uh, and Paris over 10 days in March 1928. It's a black and white silent film with running time of 17 minutes. I'm sure it's a little bit longer, but anyway. Anyway, for many years and still, published and unpublished reports have circulated that Bunuel had used a dead pig's eye or that of a dead sheep or a dead donkey or another animal in the uh, notorious eyeball slicing scene. However, in an interview in 1975 or perhaps 76, he claimed he'd used a dead calf's eye, as we just mentioned. In his original script, the final shot was to feature the corpses of the man and woman consumed by swarms of flies. However, this special effect was modified due to budget limitations, with the film ending with a shot of the man and woman half buried in the sand. I mean, the ants crawling on the hand don't look really too kind of like... -like. Well, they do, but you know, I mean, if you're going back to... 1928, is it? <laughs> well, yeah, 1929. But your thing is, as well, you know, this is real true indie filmmaking here. Yeah. Because, you know, no budget whatsoever. The anthropologist Jean Roche has reported that after filming was completed, Bunuel and Dali had run out of cash, forcing Bunuel to edit the film personally in his kitchen without the aid of a movieola or indeed any other kind of technical equipment. Well done, mate. The first screening of Unchien Andalou took place in Paris. Notable attendees included Pablo Picasso, Le Cabousier, and Jean Cocteau in addition to the entirety of André Breton's Surrealist group. The audience's positive reception of the film amazed Bunuel, who was relieved that no violence ensued. Uh, Dali, on the contrary, was reportedly disappointed, feeling the audience's reaction made the evening less exciting. He uh, probably did want a load of conflict, yeah, didn't he? Right, yeah, okay. but do you know what? They were prepared. Get this. Uh, Bunuel later claimed that prior to the show, he'd put stones in his pockets, and I quote here, to throw at the audience in case of disaster. What? Uh, through their accomplishment with Unshan Andalou, Dali and Bunuel became the first filmmakers to be officially welcomed into the ranks of the Surrealists by the uh, movement's leader, André Breton. Get them. So both of the leading actors of the film eventually committed suicide. Batchef overdosed on Veronal in April 1932 in a hotel in Paris. And Mariel committed self-immolation Ooh. on the 24th of October 1954 by dousing herself in gasoline and burning herself to death in a public square in Dordogne. Oh, that is grim. That is so heavy. Oh, Good it Lord. really is. So we're going to get to the Bowie connection. As you mentioned, it was shown before each gig, wasn't it, on the Station to Station or Isolar tour of 1976 yep. in lieu of a support band. Uh, Bowie's tour performances began with a projected sequence of uh, surrealist images, including the famous razor blade scene. 
Yeah, this was an accompaniment to the banks of fluorescent white light set against black backdrops, creating a stark spectacle on a stage largely devoid of props or other visual distractions. Uh, later, Salvador Dali told the arts writer Mick Brown that he was a fan of Bowie's music uh, and that he preferred Bowie to Alice Cooper. For a time in the 70s, both Dali and Bowie were supposedly uh, involved with the model Amanda Lear. Darley went to see Bowie and the Spiders play Radio City Music Hall in February 1973 and went to at least one other show on that tour. Main Man hosted a dinner for Darley in New York, but Bowie didn't attend. The closest they came to meeting was when they shared a lift, though neither of them spoke. I love that idea. That's bonkers, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And later, in 1973, interviewed by Russell Harty, Darley said that he didn't agree with Bowie's idea of fashion. Oh, hey. Oh, well. Uh, when Bowie launched the Beckenham Arts Lab in the Three Tons pub in May 1969, one of the earliest multi media performances he was involved in was a surreal puppet theatre or uh, operated by two local students but we rented a print of Unshian Andalou for the occasion so already you know in 69 he's trying to work that into his live show yeah, somehow yeah Unshian uh, Andalou was also screened before Bowie's gigs at the London uh, Rainbow Theatre in August 1972 and just going off piste for a moment there's yes. a very very famous of Salvador Dali walking through Paris I think uh, with his pet anteater yeah I know Have the shot it? yeah yeah that's not very sensible to have that all, is I think I'll stick with my staffy crosses. I think so. Uh, in Kevin Can's Any Day Now, hello Kevin, writing about Aladdin saying he notes that some lyrics of Watch That Man evoke scenes from the film, particularly the Reverend Alabaster danced on his knees and the man who painted holes in his hands. Uh, we know, of course, that Bowie was a huge fan of the surrealist movement in the arts. From a very early age, I was always fascinated by those who transgressed the norm, who defied convention, whether in painting or in music or anything, uh, Bowie told at Life magazine in 1992. Those are my heroes, he added, listing Marcel Duchamp, Salvador Dali, alongside Little Richard and John Lennon. All right, just this piece here from Artnet on the 10th of November 2016, the headline being, $30 million David Bowie auction sets records for modern British art. Wow. Okay. so uh, there were no signs of a post-Brexit or Donald Trump election victory backlash in the art market tonight, as fairly predictably, every lot found a buyer in the first of Sotheby's three-part, two-day sale at the David Bowie collection. It goes on to say over 720 bidders registered to make a play for the 49 lots, more than for any other evening sale at Sotheby's, and the pre-sale estimate of 8.1 million to 11.7 million uh, was already surpassed as it ran up a total of £24.3 million. Wow. Uh, Bowie was looking at surrealism in the mid-80s. Duchamp's ball of twine multiple with hidden noise attracted bidding from Polly Robinson from the Thaddeus Ropak Gallery before selling to a phone bidder for a double estimate £557,000. This group of works also saw a record £197,000 pulverise a £20,000 estimate for Mary Oppenheimer's the 1973 painting La Condition Human. Well done, mate. Great. Good Lord. Okay. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Right. We can put that over there now. Very good. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. U is for UFOs, which also incorporates Vince Taylor. Aye, it does. So, Vince Taylor, born 14th of July, 1939, died 28th of August, 1991. Born Brian Morris Holden, a British rock and roll singer. As the lead singer of Vince Taylor and the Playboys, he was successful primarily in France and other parts of continental Europe during the late 1950s and early 1960s, after falling into obscurity amid personal problems and drug abuse. Taylor spent his early life in Isleworth in Middlesex. When he was seven, the Holdens emigrated to America and settled in New Jersey, where his dad found employment. Around 1955, I love this bit. Uh, how about this detail? Around 1955, his sister Sheila married Joe Barbera of Hanna-Barbera fame. That's great. As a result of the marriage, the family moved to California, where Taylor attended Hollywood High School. As a teenager, he took flying lessons and obtained a pilot's licence. At age 18, impressed by the music of Gene Vincent and Elvis Presley, Taylor began to sing, mostly at amateur gigs. Joe Barbera, his brother-in-law, became his manager. When Barbera went to London on business, he asked Taylor to join him. So when he got to London, Taylor went to the Two Eyes Coffee Bar on Old Compton Street in Soho, where Tommy Steele was playing. There he met drummer Tony Meehan, later of The Shadows, and bass player Tex Makins. They formed a band called The Playboys. Whilst looking at a packet of Pall Mall cigarettes, he noticed the Latin phrase, In hoc signo vinces. He decided on the new name, In hoc signo... No, he didn't. <laughs> he decided on the new name of Vince Taylor. Do you know what? There's another conflicting story there, Mark. Is there? Because, uh, apparently, well, he was mad on Elvis, wasn't he? Yeah. So uh, Elvis's character was a guy called Vince Everett in Jailhouse Rock. So I think he took... One story says he took Vince from that and the Taylor bit from uh, Robert Taylor, the actor. I think that's more believable. Possibly. Yeah. His first single for Parlophone, I Like Love, which is a great title. Oh, yes. And Right Behind You, Baby. I like that too. <laughs> which is even better. Were released in 1958, followed several months later by Pledging My Love, backed with Brand New Cadillac. So Brand New Cadillac was a B-side. I didn't realise that. Yeah. Uh, the latter track featuring guitarist Joe Moretti, who later featured on Shaking All Over with Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. Wow. I tell you what, though, Parlophone must have been hard to please because they weren't happy with the results and severed the recording contract. Well, they should have just flipped it over. Well, yes, obviously. Uh, Taylor moved to Pallet Records and recorded I'll Be Your Hero backed with Jet Black Machine, released uh, on the 19th of August, 1960. On the 23rd of April, 1960, ABC TV screened the first edition of their new weekly rock and roll TV show, Wham! The first show featured Taylor with Dickie Pride, Billy Fury, Joe Brown, Jess Conrad, Little Tony and Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. While Taylor was dynamic on stage, his unpredictable personality led to many arguments within the band who parted company with him in 1961 and changed the name to the Bobby Clark Noise. <laughs> Under that name, they were contracted to play at the Olympia in Paris in July 61. Topping the bill that night, Wee Willie Harris. Get in. Taylor remained in contact with the band and he asked if he could come to Paris too. He dressed up, see sometimes they call it Paris and sometimes 
time to call it Paris. Oh, I know. I'm oh, just so cosmopolitan, yeah. He dressed up for the sound check in his trademark black leather stage gear and added a chain around his neck with a Joan of Arc medallion, which he bought on arrival at Calais. Yeah, I wonder if he bought it at the port. Mm. Uh, one version of the story says he gave such an extraordinary performance at the sound check that the organisers decided to put Taylor at the top of the bill for both shows. As a result of his performance at those shows, Eddie Barclay signed him to a six-year deal on the Barclay label. During 1961 and 1962, Taylor toured Europe with Clark's band, once again called Vince Taylor and his Playboys. Between gigs, they recorded several EPs and an album of 20 songs at Barclay Studios in Paris. By the end of 1962, Vince Taylor and the Playboys were top of the bill at the Olympia in Paris. Oh, I couldn't at Paris again now, are yeah, you? Yeah, I am, mate, yeah. Despite his onstage rapport with the Playboys, the offstage relationship faltered. As a result, the band once more broke up Taylor played several engagements backed by the English band The Echoes. He also used to back uh, Gene Vincent whenever he toured the UK, but he still presented his band as The Playboys. In February 1964, a new single, Memphis, Tennessee, backed with A Shot of Rhythm and Blues, was released on the Barclay label. The group was under contract to the Johnny Halliday Orchestra. After Halliday was required to do national service in the French Army, Clark again joined Taylor as the Bobby Clark Noise, along with Ralph Danks on guitar, Alan Bugby of The Strangers on bass, Johnny Taylor, who used to be the singers for The Strangers on rhythm guitar, and Prince Stanislas Klawoski de Roller stashed to his mates on percussion. And managed by Jean-Claude Camus, the band embarked on a triumphant tour of Spain and then co-topped the bill with the Rolling Stones during the Easter weekend of 1965 at the Olympia in Paris. Paris. The band then disbanded and Taylor, undergoing problems with alcohol and other drugs, joined a religious movement. During his career, Taylor wrote and recorded many songs, among them his hit in Europe, Brand New Cadillac, which has been covered by many other artists, including The Clash on their 1979 album, London Calling. Yeah, which is how most people came to it, really. Uh, He lived in Switzerland late in his life where he worked as an aircraft mechanic. He said it was the happiest time of his life. He died from lung cancer in August 1991, aged 52. He was buried in Lausanne in Switzerland. He'd lived there since... Since 1985, with his wife Natalie and his stepdaughter Magali, and I have to say uh, that the clash did bring it to lots of people's attention. But uh, whilst I was in the fall, we did a version of it before them. So no, 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 oh, no, no. I take that back. Do well, you know what? there you go. Yeah, nobody noticed though. So the Davy Bowie connection, according to Davy Bowie, Taylor was a main inspiration for Bowie's character Ziggy Stardust. Mm. On the 18th of August 2010, BBC Radio 4 broadcast the documentary Ziggy Stardust came from Islesworth, which, in the words of the producer, is a program that uncovers the truth about a singer whose wild lifestyle ultimately destroyed him, but in so doing he gave rise to a myth that transcended glam rock and science fiction. I just have to say at this point in time, it was my mate Bob Dickinson who made that Oh, program. was it? Hello, right. Bob. Yeah, ah, OK. Uh, the programme also claimed that his wife Natalie was a sister of Joseph Barbera, the American animator. No, it's the wrong way round! No! Uh, the band Golden Earring referred to Taylor in their 1973 album Moon Tan with the song Just Like Vince Taylor, which was a, yeah, which was a USB side for their hit Radar Love. Northern Irish singer Van Morrison, in his 1999 song Going Down Geneva, mentioned Taylor singing Vince Taylor used to live here. No one's even heard of him. Just who he was. Just where he fits in. Mm. Adam Ant wrote and recorded the track Vince Taylor, co-written with Boz Bora, hello Boz, for his 2013 album Adamant is the Blue Black Hussar in Marrying the Gunner's Daughter. The song is partly a tribute to Taylor and partly concerning a gold-plated chain given by Taylor to French girlfriend Valerie, who later passed it on to Adamant, and has further claimed to having used the chain as a weapon wrapped round his fist in a confrontation with Sid Vicious. 
worth having then, yeah. obviously. So, um, yeah, the David Bowie connection really does come in here. We have uh, mentioned this before, but there's a great story, and Bowie has told it, mm. of him being uh, on the floor, on the pavement, outside Tottenham Court Road uh, tube station yeah. with Vince Taylor and several other of Vince Taylor's acolytes. So uh, the story goes that Vince Taylor's got a map of Britain uh, laid out on the floor before him, yeah. and he's telling all of these young impressionables where the UFOs are going to come in and where they're going to land. Yeah, so, I mean, as, as he told it, I was just kind of looking at this before, uh, Bowie talked to Alan Yentob, he'd made crack actor with him, of course, in 75. Uh, in 1996, they got back together and he would talk about all sorts of stuff, including Vince Taylor, and he said, he described the event, he said everybody kind of knelt down on the pavement outside the tube station, Vince got his magnifying glass and pointed all the sites where the... A UFO was going to land. Amazing. And he said he had met him a few times at parties in London during the 60s. So they sort of knew each other that way. Right. And they'd bump into each other. I think Bowie was in the lower third. They'd bump into each other at like Gioconda Cafe, you know. And so there was a sort of association there, but it wasn't like a strong friendship. But he was certainly an inspiration. Yeah, but the thing is, you know, I mean, obviously, it must have been, like, really, really wild and exciting if you did believe him. Mm. And, uh, like, you know, you're in a pretty public place. It's not as other in the back room of a pub, but, no. like, you know, looking at each <laughs> other and, like, some rolling their eyes and sniggering. They're, like, down there on the floor with people stepping past him and him pointing to all of these different sites. They must have been going, God, this is mind-blowing. Yeah. Oh, I'm not looking forward to this one, Vince. Um, um, <laughs> but also, something that we've touched upon in the past and I've not been able to get any closer to it. Yeah. And I, I, I've put a couple of requests to uh, Tony, Tony Visconti, if you would talk to us for Cheap Things, which yeah, yeah, is uh, yeah. the, uh, yeah. the Bowie um, uh, club that we are part of. Uh, and I've not heard anything back. So maybe he's just fed up of talking about David all the time, which mm. is absolutely, completely and utterly fair enough. Um, but the, and, and the next episode that we do of the, uh, the podcast will be about Tony Visconti and it will yeah. be a whopper. Um, but there is a story uh, that uh, we didn't know about this, did we, until no. recently, while doing the research for this podcast, that David Bowie and Tony Visconti used to go out to Hampstead Heath to, to spot UFOs. Yeah, it's a great story. Well, it's mentioned, I only found out, like you really, in Kevin Can's book. Yeah. Any day now, so we get to mention here. So according to the book, in the spring of 1969, singer-songwriter Leslie Duncan introduced Bowie to a uh, UFO watch stroke meditation group based in Reddington Road in Hampstead. So it all went on from there. Right, okay. Right. Bowie attended the meetings on Tuesday evenings, during which the gathering would meditate and then they'd go off onto the top of Hampstead Heath to watch the sky for unusual celestial activity. Tony Visconti was initially sceptical, but he joined Bowie in the group meetings. Right, okay. So, I mean, that's all very interesting. And also, of course, we did um, we did the A to Z of rock. We were doing it for um, Six Music. Yes. And in that, we featured Glastonbury. Mm. Is that right? Or was it the Psych series that we did it that for? That might have been the Psych series, it I think. It probably yeah. was, wasn't yeah. it, thinking about yeah. it. Um, but, um, yeah, David Bowie, obviously, he played uh, very early on at Glastonbury. Well, the first Glastonbury, wasn't yeah. it? And uh, and there was a lot of UFO spotting on that, wasn't it? There, so was. there was a little newsletter sent out after the event, and it was saying, um, you know, we've we're going to tidy up uh, the, the fields and everything. We're going to make sure that we leave it as we find it, blah, blah, blah. And it also said at one point, did anybody else see any UFOs last night? Because we had lots of reports. Right, now, yes. Now, all yeah. you've got to do is, I can't remember how many people were at that uh, Glastonbury. Was it around about 500 or something like yeah, that? Yeah, so not much more than that, I don't think. Not many, was there? But um, you can imagine that most of them were on mind-bending hallucinogenics and they were all seeing UFOs. Yeah, we have to remember this culture did come along with the counterculture, didn't it? So they were entwined. It did. Well, here's 
another funny link, actually, because if you think about it, uh, Bowie was a fan of the Trogs, as we know, and, of course, the Trogs did play the 1980 Floor Show. Yes. And then Reg Presley made all that money out of their Love Is All Around, as mm. covered by R.E.M. and Wet, 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 famously. Yeah. Made him a, a, a truckload of cash, which he then spent on um, crop circles. He believed crop circles to be the real deal, didn't he? That's and, right. And UFOs and everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, mean, so it... I wonder if he talked about UFOs with Reg at the, the at Marquee in but... 1973. That You'd like to be a fly on the wall at that one, oh. Oh, definitely. I'd like to think so. They weren't alone either in the rock world, were they? Because Graham Parsons and Keith Richards famously used to go out to the Joshua Tree Desert and just sit there and stare at the sky all evening and look for UFOs. But, I mean, there'd be no light pollution there and there'd no. be, you know, shooting stars and all kinds yeah. of things out there and they would have probably been uh, yeah, smoking wacky bucky. I know it was illegal. Oh, do you think? And maybe had a little little dram of tequila, maybe? Possibly. Yeah. I don't know. I but anyway, that's, uh, that's our UFO section incorporating Vince Taylor and the Playboys. The of David Bowie, with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. You is also for, well, Uncle Arthur. Oh, of course it is. Uh, from 1967, to be found on the album David Bowie, Bowie's first album. You can also find it on the world of David Bowie. Opening track on the David Bowie album, recorded on the 14th of November, 1966. So there is a great piece in Nicholas Pegg's book, Hello Nicholas, about Deck Fernley, OK, Bowie's bass player and co-ranger um, on the record. And Fernley told Bowie that he was 20 years old when they met. Right. But he later confessed to being 27 right. and an uncle, right. which freaked <laughs> Bowie out completely. He thought he was hanging out with his peers and young, you know, uh. reckless like, no goods. And of course, he was a lot older and he was an uncle. Oh. Can you imagine? Oh, incredible. A lot older 27. Yeah. Crikey. Again, in Nick Pegg's book here, he tells us the main inspiration for the song is Alan Silito's 1959 collection, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, particularly the story of the disgrace of Jim Scarfdale, which tells the story of a bloke and his domineering mum. He escapes her clutches, gets married, only for the marriage to fall apart. So guess what happens? He goes back to live with mum. He does, which really does put me in mind of the, uh, really, I loved it anyway, not for everybody, but the uh, the sitcom Sorry. I loved Sorry. With Ronnie oh. Corbett as Timothy Lumsden, uh, who just couldn't escape his evil mum's clutches. No. Um, uh, so uh, he might have nothing to do with that at all. So uh, the song was one of many Bowie tunes offered to Peter, Paul and Mary, who were consistent in their disinterest. <laughs> they turned everything down, didn't they? They just kept going back to them, didn't they? Yeah, I, didn't know why, yeah. I mean, they, obviously they went to other people, and, uh, you know, Billy Billy Fury did um, Silly Boy Blue and yeah, stuff like yeah. that. You know, um, and Paul Nicholas did uh, Over the Wall, was mm, it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, it's just a really... We're going to read the lyrics out here. We, we don't we don't normally do this with the songs, but it's just a really kind of a strange tipping point for Bowie because he went through all this and then, of course, the next album is Space Oddity and it takes on a, a much more kind of sophisticated and less anti newly esque kind of scenario. Because yeah. there's some of that going on here, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, he's right in the middle of it. Okay, so uh, here's the lyrics then. Strikes the bell for five o'clock, Uncle Arthur closes shop. Screws the tops on all the bottles, turns the lights out, locks it up. Climbs across his bike and he's away. Cycles past the gasworks, past the river, down the high street. Back to mother, it's another empty day. Uncle Arthur likes his mummy. Uncle Arthur still reads comics. Uncle Arthur follows Batman. Round and round the rumours fly, how he ran away from mum. On his 32nd birthday, told her that he'd found a chum. Mother cried and raved and yelled and fussed. Arthur left her no illusion, brought the girl around save confusion sally was the real thing not just lust uncle arthur vanished quickly uncle arthur and his new bride uncle arthur follows sally round and round goes arthur's head hasn't eaten well for days little sally may be lovely but cooking leaves her in a maze uncle arthur packed his bags and fled back to mother all forgiven serving in the family shop 
He gets his pocket money. He's well fed. Uncle Arthur, past the gasworks. Uncle Arthur, past the river. Uncle Arthur, down the high street. Uncle Arthur follows mother. It's quaint. It's definitely of its time, isn't it? And, uh, and not that good. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, yeah. No, it's no, not. But, but it is of its time, but not that good. No. So that's it for this episode of the A to Z of David Bowie. But once again, before you go... If you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things. And for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Right. So now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right. Mark, Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Material such as interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends, there'll be regular film Bowie quizzes, Bowie guitar tutorials, unreleased archive written material, competitions, and perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Knock, and Jason Reed visiting various Bowie places of interest, and much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, bowiecheapthings.com. Book early. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.